Welcome to WITF Smart Talk. I'm Kerry Burkett, in for Scott Lamar. Most of us have seen depictions on television and films of undercover police investigations. Our guest today on Smart Talk is a man who actually lived that life as an undercover detective, submerging his true self into different false personas to get close to leaders of criminal gangs in order to learn about their operations and set them up to be arrested. His name is Michael Kaminsky, and he worked on the Baltimore Police Department for several years. He tells his story in a book called Life After Russian Roulette. The Russian roulette refers to the fact that each time he set up an undercover operation, it was like a game of Russian roulette. He never knew if this might be the time when he might be discovered and wind up paying a heavy, uh, possibly a deadly price. Welcome, Mike, to Smart Talk. Thank you, Kerry. Thank you. Now, before we begin, I do want to say that we're going to be talking about events in your life, which you describe in the book, and the world you inhabited as an undercover cop was sometimes very brutal, very harsh. Mm -hmm. And some people may find those things that we're going to be talking about upsetting. So uh, it may not be appropriate as well for children. I want to make sure we give that disclaimer before we begin. So, so Mike, you're living now in Pennsylvania here in the mid-state. Yes, yes. Are um, you from Pennsylvania originally? No, I was born in Anne Arundel County, the southern county of Baltimore City, where the Naval Academy is located. Your parents were from this area, though? Were they from, from Pennsylvania? They were, my father was from a little town called Shemokin. Shemokin, okay. yes, we know Shemokin. And my mother was from a little, even a smaller place called Treverden. In 1982, they retired, and they wanted to come back to the happy hunting grounds of uh, central Pennsylvania, and they got as far as this little place called Dalmatia. Dalmatia, oh, and, yes. um, not far from Sunbury. Right, yes, yeah. and uh, that's, where, that's where I live now. Well, I have to say, Mike, after, after reading your book, Life After Russian Roulette, uh, it seems so frank and honest and candid. I mean, you don't spare yourself. You don't try to justify yourself. You write very openly about your own struggles and flaws in the book. Was that, was that your philosophy, just to lay it all out there? I believe. Um, you know, I was just putting my thoughts down. I didn't think the structure was that great. I wasn't a journalist. I, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't take courses in college to be a writer. So I was just writing it as I thought. Well, I have to say, after reading it, I almost feel like I know you. Oh, thank you. Um, and that's somewhat ironic because in, in much of the book, you talk about how no one really can know somebody else. So you spend a lot of time talking about how you didn't even know who you were. As, right, yes. Particularly during that period. I really feel, Carrie, that no one really knows what's in the mind of someone else. Even in our closest relationships, um, in our love affairs, we really don't know what's in the mind of someone else. And especially when you're doing the kind of work that I did a long time ago, nobody knew what I was thinking. And I really didn't know what they were thinking. Well, we're going to hear about some of your experiences as an undercover cop. But you started off as a regular uh, patrolman in the mm -hmm. what is called the Western District of Baltimore. Mm -hmm. It was nicknamed the Wild West. Why was that? Western has been in the news probably in the last year with uh, the Freddie Gray incident. Hmm. This is the incident where a black man, Freddie Gray, died in police custody after being transported in a police van. And hmm. as I was watching the news in Baltimore about Western, I don't think it's really changed that much. Western District when I went into the police department in 1973, it's like the French Foreign Legion. You, if, you, if you did something wrong in Baltimore City, 
as a cop, as a police officer, you were transferred to Western District. Western was a wild place. Nobody wanted to go to Western. That's where I learned how not to be a cop. And it was about survival. Overall, you don't paint a very flattering picture of the Baltimore Police Department in this period, which is 1970s, uh, early 80s, or or what would be the period? I joined the Baltimore City Police Department in 1973. I was only with, uh, in Baltimore City and Western, for about 10 months. In 1974, the Baltimore City Police Department went on strike, and that ended my career as a cop in Baltimore because as a probationary police officer, I went on strike, and when you do something like that, your career is shot. Yeah. But before that, while you were there, mm-hmm. before they were going on strike, you write about something that the police did in order to boost their arrest statistics, in order to look good. And and I, you know, I, I think it's fair to say there are a great many people in Baltimore who do not trust the police. Right. This seems to be some of the things you describe may seem to give a reason for that. Tell us a little bit about what they did with the loitering law in Baltimore and how they use that. Okay. Um, I can't speak for the whole police department, but I can speak for Western. In 1973, we created a riot. I remember creating a riot. Um, the loitering law back in those days, when we're talking about a bar, you, know, you can't stand within 50 feet of the door of a bar. In 1973, I don't know what it is now. Yeah. But um, so... One day we had very little to do on a Saturday afternoon, so we thought we would create a riot. And um, a person was coming out of the bar. We waited for him to start walking across the street when the light turned green. And we stopped him. And we started to talk to him. And when the light turned red, we said, okay, you can go. You know, and he started across the street. But then we said, no, you're crossing on a red light. And so come on back, you know. And this go, this went back and forth with uh, the walk, do not walk, for a period of time, until there was a gathering starting to form, and all of a sudden it had nothing to do with this person that we had originally stopped. It was about making arrests so our stats could look bigger. bigger. So the intention the whole time was to create a gathering, to, to create, create a, a scene so that people mm-hmm. would gather around, mm-hmm. they would become upset, right, and. Then when they became upset, uh, we would arrest them for um, uh, disturbing the peace. Mm. You know, uh, I can't remember how many people we arrested that day. So the police actually created the incident. They provoked the citizens into, into a disturbance so they could arrest them. And then they would look like conscientious protectors of the community. It, it was a public relations ploy before the strike vote. It was not ethical. It was not legal. It was not right, but it was fun, mm-hmm. and we did it, you know, and uh, I'm not proud of it, but we but we did it. And I, I remember one day, um, Saturday afternoon, hot, nothing to do, so I thought I would create my own excitement. Went to the payphone, called the police department, said there was a man with a gun in the Oxford bar. You're a police officer calling the police yeah. and, and saying, there's, as a citizen, saying right. there's a man with a gun. There's a man with a gun. But in you the, never saw a gun. No. Oh. And I would have been shocked if there was a man with a gun in the Oxford <laughs> bar. It was a like a hometown neighborhood bar. And so, of course, I get the call because I'm standing right there. And I, I um, 
cancel any backup. Go in the front door, put everybody against the wall. I would have been, like I said, shocked if somebody would have had a gun. I would have probably fainted. But I knew they were playing dice in the back room. Mm -hmm. So I went in the back room, took all their money, told them, we'll make a deal. I won't charge you with anything, and I'll just keep the money. So, you know, that, that took up a few, uh, a little bit of my time. And, you know, um, and again, not legal at all. Very un It actually, working in Western District as a police officer prepared me in some ways to be undercover in organized crime and drug groups because there, there are rules and then there are laws. And we didn't go by the law in Western but we had our own rules. Hmm. And in a way, you know, a couple of years later when I was in organized crime, it prepared me to be, I would say, a really bad cop. And it wasn't like I wanted to join the Baltimore City Police Department to pr protect people. I needed the money. I know you, you write often that people would ask you, why do you want to be a cop? And you, you I had, really had no answer. I had no idea. I had no idea why I wanted to be a cop. Um, I had a wife and two two little children. I needed a, I needed a job to protect people. You know, um, it wasn't something that I really wanted. I wanted to carry a gun. My guest is Michael Kaminsky. He's the author of the book Life After Russian Roulette. It's a memoir of his life, which included time spent as an undercover cop in Baltimore. We're going to get into that part of your life next. Uh, you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF 89.5 and 93.3. I'm Kerry Burkett, in for Scott Lamar. My guest is Michael Kaminsky, author of the book Life After Russian Roulette, a memoir of his life, including time spent as an undercover cop in Baltimore in the 1970s. You know, the life of an undercover cop is something we've seen portrayed in movies and uh, documentaries, but I think the reality is something that I cannot fully imagine. You were working in narcotics, and in order to succeed, you you had to be convincing to drug dealers, and that means you had to go a long way toward becoming a drug dealer yourself. You you had to live a life that was not yourself. Mm -hmm. Tell us just a little bit about what it's like and what is the mindset like uh, to become an undercover detective. It isn't easy when you think about it. You you're always paranoid. You're always living on the edge. It's a game. For me, it was a game. You know, for me, and one of the reasons I called the book Life After Russian Roulette, because you never knew when somebody was going to put a gun to your head. The mindset of a cop living undercover is different than the mindset of a uniform cop. When you, when you have that uniform on and you have that badge that everybody can see, you think you have the power and authority to do anything you want to. When you're undercover, you have no friends. Your friends become your enemies. You don't trust anyone. That's one of the points that my training officer, PJ, taught me when, we, when I began. That's PJ, was, PJ was your mentor. He was an undercover. He kind of showed you the ropes. Is that the, mm -hmm. would, would be the case? Yeah. It's, PJ had this image of what you thought of as an undercover cop. You know, he had the long hair, the beard, you know, the, the dark, sunken eyes. Uh, he, he had this um, personality that he really didn't care about anything. He didn't care about you. He didn't care about, he didn't care about anybody. Eventually, we became blood brothers. We cut our wrists one night in the 7-Eleven. We became blood brothers. And I can't, I really didn't understand why PJ liked me because he didn't like anybody. He didn't trust 
He didn't trust police. He didn't trust the cops. He didn't trust the bad guys. He, he, he really, he was a loner. But that was the advice he gave you. Mm-hmm. Don't trust anybody. Don't trust the cops. Don't trust no. anyone. Yeah, Except me. Trust right. me. Right. And we trusted each other. And we yeah. knew a lot about each other that we, we, we made a bond when we became blood brothers, never to talk about the other person. But he taught me not to trust you don't, your enemies become your allies, and your allies become your enemies. You don't trust the police. You don't tell anybody what you're doing. You don't give your secrets away. You keep a distance. That's how I learned how to survive. Undercover is not a 9 to 5 shift. You don't start at 8 o'clock in the morning or 7 o'clock in the morning and get off at 3. You get up in the morning, and you start back in those days before things like computers and cell phones. Back in those days, you got up in the morning and you started making phone calls. Who are you going to buy from today? Who are you going to talk to? It was like early forms of network marketing. You know, it was like multi-level marketing uh, because you wanted to you wanted to buy, you wanted to sell, you wanted you wanted to be an independent dealer. Well, you two had a house, you had an apartment set we had, up, we you had, had vehicles provided to mm-hmm. you by police department and a large budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, to, to to buy drugs and mm-hmm. to to set up your bona fides as a as a drug dealer, I guess I suppose. Uh, right. And uh, we, and we, how old were you about this time? I was only in my twenties. Yeah. But I think like mid twenties. For me, like I said, it was a game. It was a sick game. It was a deadly game. But and for me, it was not about how many rests I could make. It was about knowing that I got you. I didn't work with informants that much. I didn't work with search warrants. I lived for months with people. And my first undercover assignment was to become quality control for a black drug ring. And I'm white, you know, and this was, I mean, I was the only white guy in this group and talk about trust. And when you're working in undercover work, nobody trusts anybody. When we did our deals, we sat at the table with 45 automatics. And there was always a sense of paranoia in any group that you go into because nobody knows if you're a cop. You might smell like a cop. You might act like a cop. The, the, the goal is not to act like a cop. And so sometimes you overlook a lot of stuff. I, I was with them for like four months. And the, the sad part was I was quality control. I tested the cocaine shipments coming through. If the cocaine shipments were good, then I would go on to high schools. So in your mind, you have to justify why you're doing this. If you're a straight cop in a uniform, drugs are illegal. The shipment's coming through, we, we shut it down because it's going to kids. But my job was not to shut it down. My job was to get as much as I could. And so, again, you overlook an awful lot of stuff. Your morals and your ethics are all twisted and turned and your values and what you think is right and wrong. And after, after months of living with this guy and his family, you get to like these people. And you feel bad. I, feel, I felt really, really bad when I had to arrest them. You know? And that's the way it was with all my investigations. Something, something dies inside of you after each, after each arrest. My guest is Michael Kaminsky, the author of the book Life After Russian Roulette. It's a memoir of his life, which included time spent as an undercover cop in Baltimore. And Mike, the book describes a number of operations, undercover operations you were involved in. Some of them were very tense, very harrowing uh, situations at times. One of the most brutal scenes uh, in the book was when you were attempting to infiltrate 
this biker gang known as the Pagans. And the leader was a big guy. He was known as Tiny. Tiny. Say, yeah. And, and I, I want to mention again uh, for those who are just tuning in that some of our conversation here will be about some very harsh events. It might be upsetting to some people to hear about, and it's not appropriate for children to hear. I want to make sure you, you know that as we continue this conversation. But, uh, but you set up this you wanted to set up this drug deal with Tiny to catch him in the act. Mm-hmm. And so you had to, 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 to win his trust. You had mm-hmm. to, to go in. He, as you say, had the paranoia. They were all paranoid. And he was leery of you. And, and well, tell us what he did to test you. Okay, yeah. In any investigation, it's not – you don't go in and immediately start asking to buy drugs, you know, because you aren't going to survive. You aren't going to make it. Nobody's going to sell to you. There's always a way around it. You know, I, I met Tiny by playing pool for a long time in this biker bar called Fly Like an Eagle. That, really a rough place. Back in those days, I had long hair, a ponytail, a beard that I could brush and the dandruff would fly out of. Mm. I stunk. I rarely ever changed my clothes. You know, my family thought I wasn't a cop anymore. You, you have goals when you're working undercover. My passion was to get into the pagans because I didn't know anybody else in our group or uh, in Baltimore that ever was with the pagans. And they were a nasty group of people, nasty group. And so you just don't walk up to a guy by a tiny and say, hi, tiny, my name's Mikey. You know, I'd like to you know, play a game of pool with you and get to know you a little bit more. You know, you, you don't do that kind of stuff. And so it takes time. Everything, you have to have patience. And so I, I had this relationship with one of the girls that worked at the fly, like in this bar called Fly Like an Eagle. But she didn't know I was a cop. And I was there playing pool. And um, one night uh, we went out into the car and um, we did a little bit of drugs. And she said, Boy, what can I do with you? What can I, help? What can I do for you? Uh, I'd like to order a certain amount of marijuana. And um, she said, well, there's somebody I want you to meet. We went back in. She introduced me to Tiny. And, of course, he doesn't trust me. Uh, he said, I want you to come down to the farmhouse one night, and we'll, we'll just get to know one another. You know, so I said, okay. You know, so <laughs> I, I guess a week or so later, um, I drove my um, 750 Triumph into this old farmhouse in Savage, Maryland. And... This is probably one of the few times that I was afraid. Mostly I was drunk all the time, so uh, I, I, wasn't, I, I was drunk every day of my life as a cop. You know? and, and the more that I drank, the better I was because I didn't care if I lived or died or if I got beat up. And that's part, I mean, actually, that's part of the game because you don't know if you're going to get hurt or not. That's, that's, that's actually the challenge of it is. That's the, that's the game we played. You know, the, the, the game, the challenge was... Who's going to win? Who's going to get hurt? And I'm there. There's nobody else. There's no other cops there. He said before, he said, I want you to, uh, I want you to see what happens when somebody violates our rules. He was testing my credibility, I guess. And so he brings out one of the guys that are in the motorcycle gang in a group. And this guy ripped him off, ripped him off for money. Instead of hurting him, they bring out his wife. And Tiny's wife holds this woman down on the ground. 
That's tiny rapes her. You know, the guy can do nothing about this. But I'm watching this, you know, and I'm and they're watching me, how I react to this. And I'm inside. I'm I'm inside. I'm really twisting around. But the outward, my outward personality is saying, "Yeah, go for it, Tiny. Go for it." Mm. And that's what I'm saying, you know. So your morals and ethics. Um, I passed the test. I didn't do anything, you know. I um, the and the second time, I still haven't bought anything. The second time I went to the farmhouse, they brought out a guy and they broke his two legs. And you know, they you know, both times Tiny said, you know, if you ever he used words that I can't say on the air, yeah. but if you ever violate my laws. This is what's going to happen to you, you know. You 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 sit there and you say, "What can I do about this?" And there's nothing you can do about this. My goal was to infiltrate the pagans. My goal was not to arrest him for raping that girl. And so you 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 weigh the law. What do you want? You know, you want the pagans. You don't want them for raping this girl. You want the pagans, and so you overlook. And so you justify, and then you stuff it, and you don't write about it in your reports. That didn't, that didn't go into my police report. You know, it went into the book, but it didn't go into my police report. Um, my police report just said I met Tiny, and we had this discussion, and we were going to meet later on, and that's fine. In none of the reports did I write about this girl being raped, this guy breaking, getting his legs broken. They would they would they would have ended my investigation. And I didn't want the investigation, you know, in a sick way. I wanted to finish the game. About 10 months later, it ended really bad for me because they beat me up. But um, I got 10 months out of it. But you did get them at the end as well. Yeah. They beat you up because they, 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 they thought you were an informant. They thought I was an informant. They set me up for a drug deal uh, in a place, a parking lot called the Sierra, Lounge, Sierra Club, which is, I think is gone now. Tiny called me on the phone and said, we want you to take a certain amount of drugs. And I said, I don't have any money, Tiny. You know. He said, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll, let you, we'll front it to you. We'll let you have it. It was a Saturday night. I didn't call my DEA contact. Went down to the parking lot, and I knew that there was something wrong. I, you, you feel it. You know in your mind that there's something wrong. So I'm getting out of my Camaro. And the bikers are coming around. They're, they're surrounding me in the parking lot. And they thought I was an informant. They were going to kill me. They, they really, really were going to kill me. And I felt it. I felt it. And they started beating me up. Luckily, people from the Sierra Club came out to see what was going on. And Tiny and the group left. And I was pretty well, you know, I had, my nose was broken, you know. I I can't I, I can't talk on. <laughs> um, I, I I wasn't supposed to be there in the first place because I didn't tell my supervisor, mm-hmm. I didn't tell my D my federal contact, and so what I did was um, go to this place called the Block in Baltimore. The Block back in in the seventies was a fascinating place. Prostitution, pimps, homeless, people living on the streets. That was like my second home. I, I lived on the block for a while, and uh, I sold I sold wine bottle lamps 
You know, I made lamps out of Iago Sangria wine bottles, sold them for $5 so I could go get another gallon of wine. In that way, I was learning about people on the street. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to. I had a really great expense account. But I, also ha- I was also living with two girls that worked on the block in one of the bars called the Foxy Lady. Great place. I, I love that place. But you learn a lot about, again, people. You learn about how people survive. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not just prostitutes and pimps and homeless. They are people. Living on the block really changed my personality in some ways. So, and I trusted those people. And, and, and so if I could trust anybody, I trusted those two girls I was living with. And so instead of reporting in to my sergeant for getting beat up, I go to the block for two days and I just drop out and nobody knows where I'm at and it's sort of like healing my wounds. And finally I call my sergeant and he used some words I can't say on the air, but he said, get back into Andromeda County, type up the 13 warrants and you're done with the pagans. And what they did, what the SWAT team did was go into the farmhouse really early in the morning, you know, four or five o'clock in the morning, stealth-like, go into each one of their rooms, put ropes around their necks, and pull them out like animals. You know, I, I think most of them went to jail, but that was one of the few times I wasn't there for the arrest. But you know, I was like uh, AWOL for like mm. two days. No, they thought I was dead. People mm. thought I was dead, and and that's and that's how you get after a while. You you you. You know, I had three different names, three different social security card numbers from three different states, and I was three different people. And depending on who I wanted to be going into what investigation, you know, um, that's who I became. And you, you become like the great pretender, and you become, very, you become a very convincing liar. The person that I became was not the person that I was inside. You know, I, I'm, in high school, I was a fat, dumpy little kid who couldn't talk to girls. You know, I had no self-esteem, no self-worth. And for somebody to say, well, eventually you're going you're gonna to become a cop and you're going to go, well, my first stop was Vietnam, so that trained me a little bit. But, you know, this fat little dumpy little kid who had no self-worth was going to join the pagan motorcycle gang. And, and, to, go, and to go into, back in those days, there was no um, um, psychological testing for being transferred into something like that. If they thought you were going to do it, they were going to put you in there, you know. And um, yeah, going back, and so they didn't psychologically test me to see if I was going to crack, or if I was going to shoot myself, or if I was going to go over to the other side or something like that. There was something inside of me that they saw that was going to be very successful in what I was going to do undercover and organized crime because. I wasn't a normal cop. You know, I wasn't a straight-laced cop. And, and that's probably what they saw in me. You know, and um, um, I, I always, you know, I joined, I think I joined the police department. As I used to tell people, narcotics. Narcotics and organized crime was the only, probably the, the working undercover in organized crime and narcotics was probably the only department you could work in and create your own crimes. It wasn't like homicide where, you know, there's a dead body, let's figure out who did it. Um, or somebody broke into my house, okay, let's see who broke into your house. In drug groups and organized crime and narcotics, you had the power to create your own crime. You had the power to create that drug deal. 
you had the power to you had you you had the ability to create that drug deal. Maybe they didn't want to do. Maybe they didn't want to sell drugs to you at that moment in time, mm. but you had the ability to have them sell drugs to you. And for me, for me, it wasn't about the arrest. You know, I had over, I had actually had over three hundred arrests in those years, and I never went to court. I never testified in court. They were all they all pled guilty. Um, it wasn't for me. It wasn't for me. The uh, because when I when when I we finally came down to the arrest, whether I was there or not, there was no way out. You know, I had lived with you yeah. for years. Yeah. I, I had lived with you for s- several months, and I knew you. I knew your name. I knew where you were born. I knew your family life. I knew you know. I knew everything about you. There was no way out. And that's why I didn't use um, informants or middlemen. I wasn't going to go on a search warrant of somebody else that I didn't trust to say there was uh, a shipment of heroin in that house. I needed to see it. And so there wasn't any way out for these people. I had three contracts on my life when I left the police police department. I'm speaking with Mike Kaminsky, whose book about his life is titled Life After Russian Roulette. That lifestyle that you led, the, the, the things that you witnessed, all the, the, the experiences you had, had some powerful changes, you say, and, and had some powerful negative effects on you. You write about your thoughts of suicide, that you didn't really know who you were and that you, were, you really began to hate yourself at mm-hmm. some point in this. And you wanted to get out of it. I did, yes. After every investigation, I would sort of like get away from people. I would go to my—I grew up Roman Catholic. I'm a Protestant minister now. That's kind of hard to believe. But um, I, would, I would go to my little Catholic church in Baltimore, St. Rose of Lima, in the middle of the night after every investigation because I didn't want to be around people. I would sit on a pew and look at the only light that would be that candle burning over the altar. And I would pray to God to kill me because I hated the person I had become. I set up my friends. I became friends with the. I became friends with the pagans. I became friends with this guy who, would put, you in a car and compact you, and you would disappear. I I I respected him, you know. Um, I I became friends with people that you would not really want to associate with, and I hated myself for doing this. And I hated myself for eventually, I became like a rat, you know. Even though I was a cop. I felt myself like a rat for, for taking them down. And so I would go to St. Rose and I would sit on the pew and I would pray to God to kill me because I hated the personality I'd become. I w- and I would eventually fall asleep on the pew, get up in the morning and start all over again. I would go back to the apartment and look at myself in the mirror. And I hated this image of this person that was looking back at me. It was like I didn't know this person anymore. The, the images began to haunt me. All the people that I eventually was involved with arresting, even helping to kill, they started coming after me. And the more that I, they came after me in my, in my mind, in this mirror, the more I had to drink to block it out. And I couldn't block them out. I couldn't block them out. And it was, I was becoming very suicidal. I wanted God to kill me. I, 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 tried to ki- I tried to kill myself. I was hoping that one of those contracts would catch up with me. You become, you become an image. 
you, you, you're you're a distorted person. You're a distorted image of a person you want to be, but you're not. You try. You convince people that you are something that you're not. And I hated myself for doing that. And it, it became a very sick, very sick life. Well, you did. You did eventually get out of the police department. As you mm-hmm. say, uh, you set yourself up for professional suicide. suicide. Right. You became involved with a reporter for, was it Baltimore Sun? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, you began to bring her along or, or inform her about your operations. And mm-hmm. you knew mm-hmm. at the time that she was going to write a story about this. Mm-hmm. And you knew that when she wrote it, mm-hmm. you were going to get thrown off the police force. Right. Yeah. Her name is Mackenzie in the book, but that's not her real name. She wanted to do an article on undercover work in motorcycle gangs. And since I was the only person in the unit that ever got involved in something like that, my sergeant gave her to me. And when I saw when I saw Mackenzie, I said, oh, God, she's beautiful. And so we started out with doing the article, but we got involved uh, in a relationship. And we lived together in Annapolis for about a month. And I knew she was going to do this article. And the more I thought about this article, I, the more I thought, this is... This is my way out. So Mackenzie was going with me on all these deals for about a month. One night I was talking to one of my informants, and he was telling me about dirty judges, dirty cops, and dirty lawyers working together on investigations, on criminal cases. And so I knew, and I didn't really care because I wasn't, you know, the white knight. Mm And so I, I, I gave him some money and thanked him for the information and um, just stored it in my mind. Well, Mackenzie stored it in her mind, too. And when the article came out in the Baltimore Sun and the chief read it and my captain read it and my supervisor read it, I was really called in really quick. And they wanted to know who my informant was because they wanted to know who the dirty cops were and the dirty judges and the lawyers working together on deals. And I said, I can't do this. You know, I can't give you my informant because within within that month, four of my informants were dead. Uh, three of them were murdered. And one committed suicide. They ju- she jumped off the Chesapeake Bay Bridge because she couldn't take her life anymore. Three three other informants were murdered. Um, and I said, I can't give you this this guy. And they said, Okay, we'll we'll start looking into your your background. So internal investigation went into my life. I had to get a lawyer. I was suspended. Uh, we finally came up with this plea bargaining where, I mean, this is like a TV show, where if I kept my mouth shut and didn't write about anything, don't write this book, they weren't going to charge me with anything. And this was uh, December of 79. And so I resigned from the police department saying, no, I won't talk about anything that's in this book. (laughs) And I'm wondering now that you've written the book. Are you concerned that there might be many lawsuits or, or, or contracts on, on your life from some of the, uh, those uh, people that went to jail because of your activities? I am. I am concerned. Uh, I don't care. My lawyer wanted to see the manuscript, and so I had to rewrite some of, uh, some of the chapters, three of the chapters uh, involving a murder. But um, he also said, get your will up to date. Mm-hmm. And I did. And I have a... I have a memorial fund. My wife, my second wife died in 05, and I have a memorial fund that works with domestic violence, sexual abuse, and eating disorders in memory of my wife. So anything, if anything happens to me, 
then everything goes to my my wife's memory and her memorial fund. So I, I am, to answer your question, yes, I am concerned. Uh, I think most of the bad guys are dead. I know some of the cops are still alive, but they're as old as I am, like they're in their 70s. But I have to say that cops are very vindictive. They hold grudges. And, you know, if they read about it, whoever is still around that was in that unit, they will know who they are, even though their names are changed. And so I'm, I'm waiting for the blowback. I'm, I'm waiting for the feedback because mm. I'm and maybe that's part of my uh, maybe I haven't changed that much since uh, since the early days, <laughs> because I'm, I'm I'm waiting. I'm waiting for them to come to, to come after me. And maybe I haven't gotten rid of that adrenaline rush mm. that we had so long ago. Mike Kaminsky is the author of the book Life After Russian Roulette, a memoir of his life, including time spent as an undercover cop in Baltimore. We'll have more with him in just a moment. I'm Kerry Burkett, and for Scott Lamar, and you're listening to Smart Talk. Our guest is Mike Kaminsky, who tells the story of his life as an undercover cop in his book Life After Russian Roulette. And I want to talk, Mike, about your life after you left the Baltimore Police Department. You had thought about becoming a priest. Actually, you became a Protestant minister. Tell us what drew you in that direction. Uh, I was getting out of my Corvette to walk into this bar. I mean, this is leading up to why I wanted to do this. Um, I was getting out of my Corvette, walking into a bar. Someone came up to me in the, my, in the back and behind me, and I felt the gun to the back of my head. And it was a semi-automatic, it misfired. He pulled the trigger, it misfired. I figured it was one of these contracts. So I turned around, and it was a black guy. So I figured it was the original black group that I was working with. He put the, a semi-automatic to my forehead and pulled the trigger again. And it misfired. So I thought, like, I'm dead, you know. I started thinking about my life. And... I start thinking about, you know, after every investigation, I would go back into St. Rose and pray to God to take my life, to kill me. And God never did. So maybe there was a different, maybe there was a purpose in my life. In my mind, I was going to be a priest. And I decided to leave Baltimore because I had no support left in Baltimore. And so I, I moved to Dalmatia, which was like witness protection program. Like, where's Dalmatia? Nobody in Baltimore knows where Dalmatia is. I didn't do anything except drink for six months. And I started going to a Protestant church in Dalmatia. One day I was coming back from this place called Sunbury with my weekly um, two gallons of brandy, my supply for the week, sipping on my brandy, coming into Dalmatia, beautiful May day, fell asleep at the wheel, drive my car into the, the house right across the street from the only church in town, which is a United Church of Christ church. I almost killed myself. And I'm in this hospital that I really knew nothing about called Geisinger. I, knew, I didn't even know where Geisinger, I didn't know Geisinger. I didn't know where Danville was. But I was on morphine for three weeks because of the alcohol content. Of course, I'm in the psychological, messed up morphine state of mind. And I would take these trips. Um, one trip would be 
going to hell. But for me, hell was not hot. Hell for me was a snowstorm where I was on my bed going down. I could hear voices all around me, but the snow would be coming up over me. And I knew in my psychologically messed up mind that if the snow went over my head, I was dead. So I'd start screaming the Lord's Prayer. And then I would find myself in a valley, which I thought was heaven, and then come back to the hospital. I did this every day. I screamed so much to have put me in a private room. And um, the minister of the only church in Dalmatia that I crashed into across the street from his church started to visit me. And I mentioned to him about, you know, I, I wanted to be a priest. He said, you don't want to be a priest. You really do not want to be a priest. Have you ever considered ministry? I said, no. He said, think about ministry. And so when I was in a hospital, I made this commitment to God that if I could ever walk again, I was going to become a Protestant minister. Of course, I was Catholic, you know. There's a little problem there. So I came out of the hospital in July of 86, was able to walk, and um, by September of 86, I was in Lancaster Theological Seminary only because I made a commitment to God when I was on a morphine trip that if I could walk, I was going to go into seminary. And, of course, you have to convert from Catholic to Protestant to go into Lancaster Theological Seminary. So I was only Protestant for a month, never had a, never had a Bible in my life, grew up Roman Catholic, and growing up Roman Catholic when I was growing up, the Mass was in Latin. I had no idea what this guy was saying, but it sounded like he knew God, you know, so... Um, so, you know, but he said everything in Latin. So we never had a Bible. And um, I just knew about going to church. And so when I get into Lancaster Theological Seminary, I knew nothing about, I knew nothing about the Bible. Never Plus, had. you were still drinking brandy every day. Is that correct? You were still drinking? Uh, when, I, when I went into, I mean, I, I, when I wrote my credo and my reasons for going into seminary, my justification for becoming a minister and stuff, you know, I, I was really a creative writer. You know, they probably believed what I was writing about. And so they, they, they approved me for seminary. But I was only a Protestant for a month. You know, so I, report, I remember reporting into Lancaster Theological Seminary with a gallon of brandy and a change of clothes. <laughs> and that's how I started seminary. I was drunk every day in seminary. I was going through a case of beer and a gallon of brandy every two days in seminary. But I was making really good grades. I was, you know, it, it, was, it was like getting my master's in theology, you know. And people are saying, why are you here? Why do you want ordination? It was like going back to being a cop. And people would say, why did you want to be a cop? I don't know. I just want to do it, you know. And people would say in seminary, why do, you want to, why do you want ordination? Why don't you just be a social worker or something? I said, no, I want ordination. I didn't, I didn't come into seminary to be a social worker. I came into seminary to be ordained. And so for two and a half years, I drank every day in seminary. And I guess the turning point of, the turning point of my, my journey was seminary gave me an intervention. And February 21st of 89, February 21st is my birthday. So on my birthday in 89, they, they called me, they gave me an intervention, and they said, this is your life. You either walk out of seminary tomorrow or you walk 
into treatment tonight, which way you want to walk, you know. And I had, but uh, February 21st of 89 is when I went into the Geisinger for three weeks and then to Morrowworth for four weeks. And so I was away for seven weeks, and they said, if you can get back in time, get all your work done, you can graduate. And um, I said, okay. I haven't had a drink since February 21st of 89. I got back into uh, Lancaster in time to complete all my work and graduate, but they weren't going to ordain me. They, they were not going to ordain me. So it took me from graduation in May until November of 89 for them to finally say, okay, we'll take a chance on you. I'd like you to read something from your book from that period because so many times in the book you ask those questions. You ask, why, why am I a cop? I don't know. Why am I want to be in seminary? I don't know. Why do I want to be ordained? I don't know. But when they brought you in with the committee chairperson and he asked you, why do you want to be ordained? You gave an answer, which I think is really eloquent. And I'd like you just to read that from the book, if you, if you sure. wouldn't mind. Do you mind reading it? I no. don't Why do you want to be ordained? We do not believe that you have what we are seeking within you. What is within me? I paused for a moment, then continued carefully, is the life of God. You only know part of my life. You have judged me based on what or who you believe me to be and what I have done. Through your prejudices, you have determined that I am not worthy of ordination, but I will tell you what is in my heart, and it is the love of God, the love that was given to me as a small child, the love that was given to me in a Catholic church, St. Rose of Lima in Baltimore. That love was planted in me before Vietnam, before Southeast Asia, before all the violent and wrong actions I committed as a police officer, and before I became an alcoholic to block out the memories and the thoughts inside my mind. My soul has always been strong, but my body and mind have been weak. But through it all, I have never lost the feeling that God loves me or that the Lord does not live within me or does not want me even with what I have done and the people that I have hurt. On the day I walked down the long aisle in St. Rose of Lima, as I was about to make my first Holy Communion, I believed that God would come into my body and live inside of me forever. I had the vision of a little child. I had the mind of a little child. True, I was dressed all in white, but I was not pure. I wore a little white suit, white shirt, white tie, white socks, white belt, and white shoes. I looked like an angel, but I was not one. As I knelt at the altar and waited with the anticipation of a little child to have the priest walk up to me, 
and put that little wafer on the tip of my tongue and taste the body of Christ, I believed. I believed with the mind of a child that the Lord was going to come inside of me. When the priest finally looked down at me and I opened my mouth to receive and feel the pure small piece of bread being placed on my tongue with the words, the body of Christ, I believed. I believed like a little child that Jesus was on the tip of my tongue. I believed that God was with me then and I felt different. I felt happy. I felt the love of God. I want to share that feeling with others. I want to have the power and authority to give the body of Christ to as many people as I possibly can in life. I want to give people who are searching what I have been given in life. That is why I want ordination. Thank you. You're welcome. I forgot I wrote that. <laughs> I thought, you know, after so many times saying, I don't know why, I don't know why, that that was a pretty good answer to come up with there. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's the truth. Uh, um, back in those days when you had Holy First Holy Communion as Catholic, you all wore white, you know? It was, I don't think it's like that now, but you could feel it. You could, you could believe that that priest, even though he spoke in Latin, was giving you the body of Christ, hmm. you know? And, you know, it's a very violent life. And a lot of people live very violent lives. A lot of people, a lot of people do things that they wish they had. And, and that's, what, that's what I learned. That's what I learned living on the streets in, in, in Baltimore on, on the block, you know. Um, not to stereotype and not to judge people. They, those people, those prostitutes, those homeless, those pimps, those bar owners, you know, um, those social outcasts, if they liked you, they accepted you, you know. And a lot, a lot, of, times, you know, you know, a lot of times we stereotype people. And uh, we, we stereotype people and we prejudge people without even really knowing why they do what they do or where they've come from. Our time is up. Our guest has been Michael Kaminsky, whose memoir is titled Life After Russian Roulette available on Amazon.com or at Barnes & Noble. Thank you so much, Mike. Oh, Thanks for joining us my today God. on Smart Talk. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Carrie. Join us tomorrow for a special program on the hit Broadway musical, Hamilton, as we head into the 4th of July weekend. I'm Carrie Burkett, and for Scott Lamar, you've been listening to Smart Talk on WITF 89.5 and 93.3.